Hi, this is Mary, and welcome to my podcast, Mental State, where I dive into all things mental health and more. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know I love bringing my friend Jacqueline on the podcast because she loves talking about attachment style. So the other day, as usual, Jacqueline and I were talking about attachment styles, and sometimes we find that people can be confused about what their attachment style is. And so we just want to give a little bit of a brief explanation about the four different attachment styles. And before, if you think you've heard it all, just hang in there and listen to this, because this is something that I don't know about you, Mary, I notice consistently in my work with people that there is this real confusion about whether they're actually avoidant or perhaps disorganized, or if they're anxious or perhaps disorganized. So we want to make sure we're breaking down the two because understanding what attachment style you have will allow you to do the work you need to fix it because it does look different for each style as far as the needs. Right. And it's, and I see it as people can also have tendencies. Like for instance, we talk a lot about secure attachment style. And so somebody can feel very secure with themselves, with their partners in the, in any kind of relationships that they have. And there may be some things that come up where they feel a little bit more avoidant. So then they start to question, so does this mean I'm avoidant? So what we want to explain is that you can have some of these tendencies. You can have anxious tendencies, avoidant tendencies in all of the attachment styles. So we just kind of wanted to give a little bit more of a deeper explanation about how this works. And we're really looking for what you tend to lead with. And again, mm -hmm. attachment style, I truly believe I have seen it. The, the evidence is out there. It can be shifted, right? Just as there are influencers that will inform what attachment style we're given, we can also move through it and it's up to you to do the work. So let's exactly. start with our favorite attachment style, the one that we all want, secure attachment. And so when, and, and when Jacqueline was saying that, you can shift into an earned secure attachment style. I love that phrase because it really is earned if that's not something you necessarily grew up with. And it's earned through nervous system regulation. Secure attachment, uh, people who run secure tend to have, right, that kind of golden retriever vibe of an innate sense of trust. Uh, they're fear intelligent. They're not dopey and confused and trusting of everything. They have an innate sense of knowing when it's safe to move forward, what their needs are, and when they might need to pull away. And they accept other people's limitations. They tend to have healthier communication patterns and know their own limitations and their own needs and have the confidence that they can meet those needs even if another cannot. So they have more of a flow of it's the balance of that kind of internal emotional life and that depth, as well as that external connection with others and the lightness that can be there, right? There tends to be a, a heavy grip with the anxious side of ourselves or the disorganized. And the avoidant masks that heavy grip by preferring everything to run on the surface level, right? Because the depth is what triggers the avoidance side mm -hmm. of it. Like checking out. And, and I love that phrase that you used, fear intelligence, right? Because a lot of this is about safety, right? Feeling safety, feeling connected. That's our survival, right? If we're connected to something as we grow up, it's our caretakers. 
We're feeling like we're cared for. This is going to ensure our survival. So when we feel that disconnection, right, this can really affect, and I love this phrase that you used, our fear intelligence. So when we run anxious, Jacqueline, how do you see our fear intelligence being affected? So, you know, Deb Dana actually has a really good book out there called Anchored. And I love uh, something I was uh, reading about hers the other day. She talked about how people who didn't get enough co-regulation tend to put an overemphasis on that because the safety when one is alone isn't there. They don't know the difference between that kind of um, peaceful solitude and loneliness because the loneliness, which is one of the roots of the anxious attacher, right, which is, you know, the guard dog and Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. I'll, I'll do anything to not feel some sense of separation because that separation means equals loneliness, equals abandonment. On some, it's the survival brain level, right? Like this isn't in our conscious or secure state or the guard dog. So it is very difficult for anxious attachers to live in a sense of joy and peace because what is the job of a guard dog? To never rest, to guard, so to look out for danger. So it's a consistent finding of problems, difficulty uh, relaxing, consistently thinking about the other person, a tendency towards fantasy. Uh, a lot of people think they're anxious, but are actually disorganized, which is that push-pull we're going to get into in a little bit, leading with the anxiety type. So hold that part of how we've described anxious. And Mary, why don't you do the honors of describing that lone wolf, the, the avoidant? Well, before I get into that, I wanted to kind of address this co-regulation piece. What is co-regulation and what does that look like? And so, you know, if you see a mother with an infant who's cooing and the mother will coo back at the infant, or if you see an infant crying and the mother will soothe the infant, this is co-regulation. And what is happening is that we're these mirror neurons, right? Our caretaker is mirroring what we're experiencing. And this is all implicit, right? This is all pre-verbal, unconscious processes. And what happens is that we unconsciously internalize this soothing, this mirroring. So that really helps build that secure attachment. When we don't get that, when that gets missed, what we call that misattunement, then we can either run anxious or avoidant or disorganized. And in the lack of attunement, that can either look like over-attunement, so forcing affection, give me kisses, give me kisses, when the child, they're not sensing that the child doesn't want that, right, has actually pushed away, or not sensing the child has a need, right? So it really looks both, both ways. And as an adult, how you can tell if somebody's a good co-regulator is going to be and how they're able to kind of mirror what your experience it is. So, wow, today I, you know, spoke to A, B and C person and and this was stressing me out. And, you know, you're discussing your frustrations and the person is able to say back to you, wow, that does sound really frustrating. Yeah, I'd be frustrated, too. Right. That's a mirroring. And what happens when we grow up is the parent is experiencing their own dysregulation and distress. If they're having insecure attachment, they see the child in distress. And because their systems then run on their own distress, 
they don't know how to come in and do that mirroring because they're experiencing their own dysregulation, whether it's over attunement or under attunement. Mm-hmm. And I also want to say that most of these processes do happen within the first like zero to 18 months. It's pre-verbal where somebody grows up in a securely attached environment and then something tragic happens and it can shift their attachment. We have this wonderful podcast with grief specialist, Claire Bidwell-Smith, and she describes this process that she experienced personally. So I just thought that was a really great example of how it can also shift in the other direction. Yeah. Or uh, a family member who's chronically ill, never knowing whether they're going to to live or die, right? That can, even though the family unit is very close, I've seen, uh, worked with people who've had situations like that, who generally Everything was pretty good, but that situation flipped the switch for them, right? So we're going to go to the lone wolf. And so I think one of the things that Jacqueline was talking about was the over-attunement, right? The, the kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, love me, love me, love me. Maybe the parent is expressing what they didn't get from their own family system, and they're putting it onto the child. And the child can experience like, ooh, that's too much. I don't want that. And that can start to really build some type of reluctance about relying on others emotionally and wanting to maintain that emotional independence. So that leads to a self-sufficiency and learning to rely on themselves at a very young age and also looking at emotional dependence as a sign of weakness. Love that. Yeah, I know. Right. And so people also struggle to express their own emotions because maybe that's another thing that wasn't mirrored in their family system was communicating emotions. So they might struggle to express their own emotions and downplay their own feelings. Right. And then they also I see this a lot with clients is they have a limited emotional vocabulary. When you ask a client, like, how do they feel? It's just, it's very limited. It's like, oh, I feel angry. Okay, well, what does that feel? You know, what's underneath the anger? And it's like, I don't know. It's just anger, angry. And so there's like or a I limited. Fine. I love that. I feel fine. I'm okay. Right. What, what, is this? what is that? That was like my, I feel fine was like my 15 year old answer to everything. How are you? I feel fine. What also happens, which is unlike people who run anxious, is that avoidance fear that getting too close to others emotionally. They don't want to, they don't want to, that does not feel safe to them. That does not feel comfortable. And they want to protect themselves because there is a deep underlying pain that's beneath that. And there's also discomfort with vulnerability. So whereas like anxious people are like, love me, love me, love me. And they, they think want that, that they're like, that feels so good. Right. But, and also, and also this sort of like, misconception of by me needing somebody else is actually showing my vulnerability. But I don't really think that's necessarily true. And on the flip side, uh, avoidance will be like, I don't need anybody. And they're like, I am not going to show that I'm vulnerable. And the vulnerability is actually those deep seated insecurities of like, I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. But instead of like tapping into that, I won't be able to meet your needs or you won't be able to meet mine. Exactly. Exactly. Because nobody has. Nobody's been able to meet my needs, which is that self-reliance. So I can do it on my own. Yeah. 
And it doesn't just come, just to be clear, I love that you touched upon the over-attunement part, right? Because a lot of times avoidance, like one of the, the key pieces uh, around learning, avoidance is a kind of generali a generalization of childhood. My childhood was pretty happy, nothing happened, but they can't give specificity towards why. And in general, let's go back to secure attachment. Secure isn't, remember, the anxious type is Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. Love me, love me, love me. That kind of toxic positivity. Everything's fine, but then the crash. Secure attachment is an integrated experience or uh, idea of what their life was. Yeah, overall, my life was pretty good. I was able to get through these hardships. This part was more challenging, right? They had that integration between the tough times as well as the overall picture. Avoidance can tend to say, well, things are pretty good and they leave it vague in that way. Or I, I don't know, I didn't have any problems with my parents. Actually, I'm pretty close to my parents. But when I find that I break down the nuances of what happened in the past, I see where those gaps are. So it's not just over attunement. It can also be under attunement, right? The parent becomes so dysregulated. They don't know what to do. They freeze. And so then the child also learns, well, I must handle it on my own, right? We usually get the attachment style of our, our, of our parents, right? It's passed down to us, not just through action, but through intergenerational uh, DNA, right? It's been proven that our experience right now informs our DNA and is passed on to future generations. And so we all know that anxious attachers are described as needy. I mean, I think that's kind of like the the global word, right? Especially and, by avoidance. Yeah, exactly. And I think that avoidance can be described as shy. Um, Robotic, shut down. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. mistaken for that. It doesn't mean the emotional life isn't there. They present in a way that's more shut down, that's more shy, that's more timid or dismissive. When those deeper conversations come up, they might project onto you instead of taking ownership over their side. No, you are the problem because it's very, uh, on some level, distressing uh, to, for them to say, oh, this is my emotional experience, right? Because the nervous system is saying, is, has been trained and reinforced those neural pathways saying, this is not safety if I discuss this, right? And the tricky thing about avoidance, and Jacqueline and I talk about this a lot too, is that avoidance can really be seen as social butterflies mm -hmm. because they're just sort of flitting from place to place. They're not really establishing a deep connection, but they like, they're people who have a, a lot of friends, right? You may see their feeds being populated by parties and friends, and it kind of feels a bit like FOMO if you follow an avoidance feed because they're just all over the place doing so many different things. But what we see that they're really lacking are these deeper connections. Yeah. Now on to Mary's and my favorite Drum son. roll, please. <laughs> the disorganized attacher. And uh, it used to be mistaken for something that was only rare and extreme, but Mary and I disagree on this. I think it's pretty common. It just depends on to what level. And remember, we're looking for what we lead with. If you are somebody who consistently picks unavailable partners, you might be a disorganized attacher leading with anxiety, for example. 
Disorganized attachers contain both the anxious and the avoidant. And you either lead with the anxiety, I call that the peacock, right? Displays its beautiful feathers, yearns for partnership, gets into partnership, and then it's like a slippery little sucker, right? You can't hang on to a peacock. It's always uh, darting around. It experiences a lot of fear once that closeness comes up. So the worry comes out, maybe the tigger comes out. It's hard for them to ground into that connection. And the reason... I'm going to interrupt for a second. And I just want to say to our dear listeners, one, one of the perfect examples of this that I hear a lot is that we talk about this in our dating apps episode is that when people like when people are looking on the apps and they see somebody that they're interested in and the person has in their profile that they want a relationship, right? I think what Jacqueline is describing is a story I've heard. It's a story as old as time. I've heard this story so many times from people who are dating that are like, this person said they wanted a relationship. We went out for six weeks and then they ghosted me or they said that they weren't interested. And it can be like super devastating for the person to receive that because if somebody's saying that they're, that they want a relationship and they feel very committed to that person, like I hear we had a connection and it's not from somebody who's running anxious. Like there, I mean, there might be some anxiety in there, but they're really believing like we had a connection. And then the person is like, is apparently not interested in a relationship and it can be so confusing. And that's why I love that term disorganized because disorganized conveys a sense of confusion. When our brains are experiencing distress from the central nervous system, they go into a sense of disorganization. When we have like the anxiety, which is that rigid thinking or the avoidance, no, it's not my fault. I I can't deal with this out, out, out. That is also rigidity. When the brain is experiencing rigidity, it is actually in a state of disorganization. Um, Disorganized attachers can be highly charismatic, right? Like I love that. The peacock feather is beautiful. We haven't even gotten to the other side of what that looks like, but they, when when it's on, it's like you're in the love oil, right? You're so deeply connected. Like the experience is very intense, very deep. It is on when you're connected with a disorganized attacher. And when it's off, it goes the other way. Like it's real hot and cold, push, pull, high, low, in, out. Yeah. And I also, I also see that a lot too with the communication style. So that, you know, people have said to me, oh, you know, when we're together, it's it feels very, you know, romantic and connected. But then when it's texting, it's just like these one word answers and it feels very disconnected. And it feels like it's like a it's like a a slippery fish. Right. It's it feels like it's really hard to pin that person down. So it's like in person, for some reason, they can kind of like show up. But then when they're and this might be like running more on the avoidant, but But when they're like in this sort of texting and they're not really together with the person, it literally feels like you're in two different relationships. And alternatively, if somebody is developing this whole, I'm always like people who are having whole text relationships before they've even met, I guarantee you the person is a disorganized attacher because people can develop all kinds of fantasy, whatever it is, the connection 
is not going to be the same once you meet in person. And disorganized attachers are really good at creating closeness with distance. They slay <laughs> at texting. It, it, it could be like a faint sense of no, closeness. Yeah, they, I mean, I feel like they're really good texters because it feels so safe to be on the other side of that screen. I remember this. Oh, my gosh. Like I was Cyrano did Bergenac. Yeah, he was so romantic via text. Oh, my goodness. I was pulled in. We got on the phone and he was so dismissive around everything I said. I was like, oh, my gosh, it was such a different experience. And to to his credit, he was a disorganized stature. And he was actually, to his discredit. <laughs> to his, well, I said, uh, I'm teasing. Was, unfortunately, uh, the mirror that is, I learned, uh, I was too, right? And that's the thing. If you tend to draw in disorganized attachers, you are most likely also a disorganized attacher. If that's the primary amount of relationships going that direction, right? So that's where, again, we're looking for the primary system. Let's talk real quick around the disorganized attachment leading with that avoidance side. I like to call that like the tiger on its back, right? It's it's alluring, it's sexy. You go in, maybe you're going to give it a belly rub and that's going to be euphoric because it's pretty special to do that with such an exotic animal. Or you might get attacked and mauled. <laughs> and the reason, I mean, I make a joke of it, but that is what's happening within the system of the disorganized attacher leading with the avoidance, right? It, because both safety and distance can be distressing in different ways, depending on if you're leading with that avoidant piece or leading with the anxiety piece, it is really unpredictable because the avoidant never, uh, or, or sorry, the disorganized never knows quite what's gonna trigger it, especially when you lead with the avoidance because avoidance can be really hard to spot, right? On the surface, people who run avoidant, they might not recognize they're in distress. They're like, that parasympathetic nervous system is running the show. So they feel fine. They don't feel distressed. What? Why are you so upset? I'm totally fine. There is no problem here. Oh, you're responding that way? You are overreacting. And then they might do something that's pulling you in and making you feel really connected over here. So you see that confusion that starts to happen. And that, again, is because for, for the disorganized attacher, both closeness and distance are threatening. Mm. Mm -hmm. So if yeah. we the avoidance piece, distance is going to feel a little safer than closeness, hence a great text relationship, right? Or maybe a situationship, right? Tends to be a disorganized attachment, right? Like I can handle this, but not that, right? There is the, the close but far. Right. So we're always looking for where the two of those are existing. And and I think also, I mean, I love that you bring up the text relationship in this, because with these texting relationships, it really allows us to avoid any kind of conflict. Right. It gets to keep it kind of light and any kind of confrontation. So it's like, oh, maybe a phone call feels too confronting. Right. And so that can feel very distressful. And so maybe something in that person, Jacqueline, that you were talking about before, you're like, when we got on the phone and had a conversation, again, it, it might have felt like, okay, this is a kind of a different version of this person who's showing up, because that might have felt like too much for him. It And again, he wasn't aware of it, because he led with the dismissiveness. And then he would do things like we kept in contact for a while. And I remember a very close 
family member of his passed away. And he he texted me at like, no call, just texted me at. And we hadn't spoken in months. Like I was like, oh, I, I didn't realize that this person felt like safe enough. Like they were going to me for comfort around that, perhaps because I work in the, the health and wellness spectrum. But for him, I think because that avoided in him um, feel safety with the distance, he did feel really connected to me, even though we weren't talking much, right? Like he was like, oh, I do feel close to this person. My experience was like, really? We actually haven't spoken in months at this point. I run more anxious, right? So I'm, I'm more of the peacock type. So I get a little, I get in and then I start having lots of worries, right? And that can also be hard to recognize uh, because we can blame it on a lot of external things. Oh, this person's doing that or this person's doing this. And I'm in distress because these things are real when actually it's because the disorganized attacher doesn't know how to sit in closeness or distance without that nervous system running on distress. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there was a part of him that, you know, even that kind of what, what you're sensing as like, this didn't, to me, this didn't feel like a connection. And to him, it did feel like a connection. So I can imagine that there was like some part of him that was so yearning for some kind of connection that even a little bit of a connection felt really strong to him because maybe he wasn't used to making those types of connections. Like totally in the text, like maybe he could feel like he could be vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. In a safe way. You know, just to give another example of the dismissiveness that came up within him once he had told me about the very close family member who passed and I had mirrored that experience for him and said, oh, that sounds really hard. And his response is, well, life goes on. (laughs) You know, I was just like, boom, just missing it. Just like that. Everything's okay. I'm just sharing this really, you know, intimate moment with you. He hadn't told many people. The minute I mirrored it, it was shut that down, right? So that's how that avoidant side kind of comes up. And I'm also wondering how other people responded because I think that sometimes avoidance, right, like attracts like, right? And so I, and even if he didn't tell many people, aside from that, you know, some of the responses that come up when somebody experiences a loss is, oh, you know, you'll get over it or you'll feel better soon. It's sort of like it's, again, right, dismissing the part of it that because maybe the other person feels uncomfortable and doesn't know how to deal with loss. So it's a bit of a dismissal, which he may feel comfortable with if he had shared it. Let's say he shared it with two other good friends and they're like, you'll feel better. Time heals all wounds. And you were really like, oh, wow, I'm going to be able to, I'm going to take this in and reflect it back to you. And he's like, what? Doesn't know how to take it in, right? Literally hard, hard to have that connection, that, that receiving. I wanted to share a little story just about myself so that people can get a better understanding of what disorganization looks like. Because again, there's a lot of confusion People I hear consistently, I, I, I'm anxious, but when I go into their history, I really see the disorganization there. And again, there are levels of this in how extreme. So it can be more subtle. And I used to think I ran disorganized. And then I thought I had worked through all my disorganization. And I was only anxious. And I was like, 
I'm so proud of you. You graduated. I graduated. And I got up (laughs) with a person who, after a certain period of time, I realized was another disorganized attacher. And I felt so defeated because I realized I was like, if I'm so in on this person, (laughs) you not want to let this person go. I am most likely still experiencing disorganized attachment. And again, I want to emphasize that you've done a lot of work around this and maybe some of those kind of parts of you that haven't completely healed around the disorganization may have shown up, but I still don't believe that you're disorganized. And that's why I like to say, okay, I might have some traits of disorganization, but I don't feel like I'm fully disorganized push-pull. I might be like, oh, that's that disorganized part of me showing up. Let me get curious about that. I don't, I I would definitely not say that it's like, yes, stamp, disorganized attachment. No. Well, what that helped me see was really taking ownership over the side of me. And now listen, it was huge progress because actually I got out pretty quick. Like I got out in under two months. So that's a sign of earned secure attachment. It also helped me really own that part of me that does run avoidant that says, mm-hmm, I, it's uncomfortable for somebody to show up as my equal, right? And the other side of that is I, I actually, you know, like I said, I let it go in under two months. It really opened me up to someone who was more available, right? So, but p- the work in how to heal this is to take ownership over and responsibility for all sides of yourself, right? Because if I don't have the awareness of when my inner avoidant is coming Mm -hmm. up, I actually can't do anything to regulate my system, right? That side is just running over there silently abandoned, right? And by drawing limitations in relationships or saying, you know what, this no longer works for me, I'm not okay with that kind of behavior, you become more available to yourself, right? It becomes integrated and balanced within, right? So through that work, I was able to somehow like own that part of me and see when I would meet people, the part of me that was like, oh, I am experiencing discomfort as there's closeness. And it also actually allowed me to move in towards people who are more available. So the reason I, I say all that is because we can say, oh, I'm just anxious. I'm just anxious. I'm just anxious. But if you actually have a pretty heavy history of people who run unavailable leading with that anxiety, but you say, for example, all the ones I like, uh, who like me, I'm not into, that's a sign that that closeness mm-hmm. is, is scary or distressing on some level. And the recipe it's you have to have this as the solution for the disorganized attachment is to own like in your body, not just in your mind, but it happens intellectually first, both the side of you that wants to stay and the side of you that wants to go. You have to learn to hold both sides, um, the part of you that's having the emotion and the part of you that doesn't want to have that emotion, right? Experiencing both of those allows your body to have the full experience of what is actually happening. And by you mirroring that back to yourself, your body doesn't feel abandoned in any way. That builds secure attachment. If you run disorganized, you 
have to carry both of those. You have to dig into the side that doesn't want to come up, right? If you're running highly avoidant, you were suppressing a lot of anxiety. So the work has to be around, oh, I see my numbness is, is a key that I'm tuned out, that I'm actually in distress in some way. Can I start exploring that? This is the other person's fault. Is it really? Let me dig into that. The anxious type is going to say it's all my fault. There's problems. There's problems. There's problems. Can we lean into the side that runs more numb? Where, where is that? What about that side that comes up when they meet someone? Maybe they're not exactly what we picture in the looks department or in personality or qualities in some way. What about the part that's like, no, 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 no. If it's highly rigid, there might be some avoidance there. And if you start to dig into that side, you will become more balanced. This just makes me think about when you were saying like, oh, are we avoiding this part of ourselves or that part of ourselves? When it's all about integrating both parts, the avoidant part and the anxious part. And I, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about like my own past and thinking about what were the parts that of myself that were rejected by others, right? And those are the parts that kind of, I, I feel like maybe that's why I ran more avoidant because my anxious parts that were showing up were rejected by teachers, my parents, right? It was just like, it was like I was too much. And being too much was quote unquote bad. And so and I rejected that too much part of myself. And I felt so much shame in that, in being too much, that I started cultivating that more avoidant side of not being too much in order to have acceptance. So it's just kind of interesting, like as you're talking about that, to go back and just to be like, oh yeah, when were those parts, you know, when, when, when did I run more anxious and what was going on with me then? And how was that treated and what happened to that part of me if I now run more avoidant or vice versa? And so I think it's just such an interesting exercise. And I love that you're talking about like, let's hold space for both of these sides, right? And give them attention so that we can integrate them and become more secure. If you lead with the avoidance side to set you up for success, the work is like turtle steps, baby steps. It so, is so turtle. It's so slow. It's so slow. So even, right, if you're running disorganized and you tend to lead with the anxiety, right, it's going to be harder to fire when the avoidance is happening, just as if you lead with the avoidance, it's still hard to fire, recognize when you're actually in the avoidance. So it will start from an intellectual experience. Uh, before you're able to feel it in the body, that first step is the awareness, right? If you run more anxious, it's a bit easier to spot, right? Because the anxiety puts us in pain. What you want to look for is that thought rigidity, which is going to say the external thing is the answer. If I just get this thing the way I want it, if that person, like if they just come to me, I will be okay in life. That's brain rigidity. And your work is to mirror. It's the same with the avoidance is to mirror what's happening inside you, right? That builds that, that inner security. So if I am hurting because I'm Somebody is rejecting me in some way. If I just talk to myself, I don't tell myself toxically positive things like 
oh, cheer up. It'll be okay. You'll meet someone great. Unless that feels good to me, I might say something more like, yeah, I hear that you're really hurting right now, Jacqueline. There's a part of me that's really hurting around this. And I don't like hurting. I don't want to hurt. Yeah, I hear that there is a part of me that also doesn't want to feel any of this. I hear that there is a part of me that feels confused. And there's also a part of me that wants all the answers right now in order to feel okay. So I use that as an example to express what mirroring is in that honesty, right? Like that, that security comes from honesty with what our experience is. And the more that we're able to, Mary, as she mentioned earlier, articulate what we're feeling and then mirror it back to ourselves, we end up in a secure place. When I started to get trained in attachment styles and healing them, I was told it takes an average of two to four years. And in what I've seen, that's actually pretty accurate, depending mm -hmm. on a variety of factors. Two to four years might seem long, but you know what? It's shorter than repeating, 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 right? Yeah. And I love that you were talking about the work is slow because we say to go fast, we have to first go slow. And it might seem excruciating at first. And now when I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, right? I look back on a past past version of myself and I was like, oh, I can, I can feel so much self-compassion for her. But then it also feels like it was really fast. Like, oh my gosh, I'm not there anymore. Now I'm here. It's definitely a value to put in time with this work. And it's also building that, that sense of trust. So if you have any questions about attachment styles or anything else that's related to mental health, you can DM me on Instagram at Mary B Therapy or reach out to me on my website, marybtherapy.com. And thanks for listening.